Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where we were a little bit last week, and then we'll go back to Hebrews 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And let's pray. King Jesus, God, thank you that you are our inheritance. God, you're the king. God, if you are in us, the king of our hearts. God, you're the king and lord of the universe. Whether we think so or not, God, the fact is that you rule and reign over all things. And God, last week as we looked at your glory and creation, God, we see that you're holding all things together and still you love us. So God, this week as we look at your glory and redemption and the work that you and you alone have done, God, would you open up our eyes and our hearts to see your majesty, to see your face, to behold your glory, to be transformed into your image, to desire you more and more, and to go out and proclaim the gospel, the good news about you. Jesus, I ask if anyone in here does not know you, is not in you, that you would draw them to yourself. Help them to see your glory and your beauty this morning as we read your word and follow after you. God, make us more like yourself. God, I pray that we would honor and glorify you in everything we think, say, and do. In Jesus' name, amen. Brief recap from last week. Last week we uh, went through the first uh, two and a half verses of Hebrews. Uh, So we'll be in Hebrews 1 again, looking at verses 3b through 4. Um, But momentarily we are going to read 2 Corinthians 3.18. We looked at this last week. We talked a little bit about why uh, we don't just give ABCs or seven steps or whatever here. Uh, right, like this is the problem with with so often with what people or churches do is we try to make them change, right? This is so again we we don't say like this are seven steps to a better marriage or three thousand steps uh, to a better you or whatever. This is why we simply say, look at Jesus, behold Him, and you will be changed. Second Corinthians three eighteen gives us a clear message about that. And we all, with unveiled face, we talked about that, Moses having to veil his face after seeing the glory of the Lord. Now Christ has come with unveiled, unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So how are we changed? Not by a better pep talk, not by a New Year's resolution, not by saying, I'm going to do better or be better but simply by looking at Christ and letting him transform you and becoming like Christ, being transformed. I love that word transformed, right? It's the same Greek word uh, where we get metamorphosis, right? So a caterpillar goes into a cocoon and is changed, right? doesn't do anything to change itself. It's simply changed into this butterfly, right? Likewise, we are transformed when we behold the glory of Christ, when we look at Jesus, when we look at his word, when we look at creation like we talked about last week, when we look at the beauty of Christ, when we come together and we sing songs about Christ, and we spend time praying together, and we focus daily on Christ, we meditate on his word, we soak in his word, we walk with him, 
We are transformed into His image. We become more and more like Christ. So we talked about this word glory, right? We, we talked about this last week. Glory means weightiness or beauty, right? Like this heaviness, this greatness uh, to the point, right? We, we quoted the, the quote from Paul David Tripp. Uh, if, if we were to try to uh, talk about glory, it would be like us trying to fit a full-sized elephant into a thimble. It's impossible. We cannot describe God. Therefore, we cannot fully describe his glory, right? Because he is so great. He is so awesome. And he is so much higher than us. Our finite minds cannot understand his greatness, his beauty, his glory. But we see this word glory. So go with me to Hebrews chapter one. We'll be camped there the rest of the morning. We'll recap from last week. We went through the first, like we said, verses one through three a, and we'll go into verses three b through four today. So let's read again. Let's start back at verse one. So Hebrews one, verses one through four. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So we saw several things. One, that all of the Old Testament is pointing to Christ, right? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, Christ spoke to us through many different things, speeches, dreams, visions, a donkey, a burning bush, right? We talked about that. Like Christ spoke to us and put these uh, on, uh, thankfully, and it's great grace that he shows us by putting these words on a page so that we can read and see that it's all pointing us to Jesus, right? Long ago, many times, many ways, God spoke to us by, to our fathers by the prophets. But now we see the greater prophet has come, Jesus. These last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. That word heir is, is connoting the idea that, that Christ owns everything, right? There's not one square inch that Jesus does not say mine, Abraham Kuyper said, right? Everything is Jesus's and Jesus's alone through whom also he created the world. Not, does, not only does Jesus own all of the world and, and everything in it and all of the universe, he also created it. Christ is the creator of all things. And then he is the radiance of the glory of God, this shining, right? The Greek word there, apagasma, right? He is this inherent glory and this, this glory that is coming out of him, the shining glory and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Right, Christ is holding all things together. Whether it's you or me or a bug or a plant or a rock or the planets or the stars. Right? Jesus and Jesus alone is the one holding those things together. And all of those things, Psalm 19 tells us, are pointing to his glory. They're screaming day by day. They're pouring forth speech. And night by night is giving us knowledge Psalm 19 tells us it's all pointing us to Jesus. We see his glory. When we look at creation, we're looking at just a snapshot of the glory of Jesus. When we look at each other as image bearers, people created in the image of Christ, we are looking at people who are, yes, broken images, but people who Christ designed and loves and holds together. 
And then we see that, this, this seamless uh, transaction into this next phrase here. Uh, we have to remember, in, in the original language, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 is all one, uh, one sentence. So this is all going together. And it almost seems like the author just completely shifts gears, right? He's talking about God's glory, God's beauty, uh, all the things that Christ has done, right? Him holding all of creation together, him creating all things. And then seamlessly he goes into after making purification for sins, into this work of redemption. Now, we don't see this word redeem or redemption in this text, but the idea is here. What the work of redemption that Christ has done is done, right? It's finished. It's complete. We're going to talk about that here in a moment. This word redeem means, the, the dictionary definition is to gain possession of something or someone in exchange for payment, Right, And this is the work of redemption that we'll talk about this morning. As we saw last week, the glory of Christ in creation. Now we see the glory of Christ in redemption. So right after the, the author gets done saying he's upholding the universe by the word of his power, he says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than yours. So just the seamless uh, going from God's glory and creation and God upholding the universe by his power to Jesus making purification for sins, right? These two things are inseparable. Right? The fact that Christ is glorious and holds his creation together and the fact that Christ saves his people are inseparable. If we don't have a right view of God's glory and creation, we won't have a right view of who we are as image bearers and the, the importance, the magnitude of Jesus saving us, stepping down out of glory of his throne to rescue, to redeem you and I, to make purification for our sins and our sins alone. It is amazing to me that the same section where the author talks about the vast glory and sovereignty of Christ, he also shows the loving, forgiving, purifying, grace-filled nature of Christ. Right? Have, you, have you thought about that? Like Christ has everything he needs. Right? If we were to just read Hebrews 1, 1 through 3a, we would see Christ is completely self-sufficient. Christ does not need you and I. Right? We talked about that last week. He has no need of us. Right? He spoke through a donkey. He doesn't need us proclaiming the gospel. He spoke through a donkey. He speaks through dreams and visions. Now he chooses to use us, absolutely. But Christ has no need. Christ doesn't even need us to glorify him. His glory is what is best for us. It's what we were designed for, Isaiah 42 tells us. It's what we were created for. We need Christ. We need to glorify Him. But yet, even in that glorious self-sustainment of Christ, He chose to come down to rescue us, to redeem us. I love what William Barclay says in his commentary on this. He says, here's a wonderful thought. Jesus is God's glory. Therefore, we see with amazing clarity that the glory of God consists not in crushing men and reducing them to abject servitude, but in serving them and loving them and in the end dying for them. It is not the glory of shattering power, but the glory of suffering love. Right? Christ could easily just say, I'm going to wipe out all of creation and send every person to hell, and he would be completely just in doing that. But yet he chooses not to show his glory by crushing men, but by coming down to rescue them, to redeem them, to save them. Christian, think about that this morning. The God of all the universe, who is holy and perfect, 
and just and righteous and good chooses to show mercy and grace, chooses to come out of heaven, to step out of heaven, to rescue, to come in your and mine shoes, to suffer for us, to die for us, to redeem us up out of the pit. He's loving and kind. I love this. We talked about John the Baptist in John chapter 1 last week. John the Baptist didn't say, Behold the warrior of God who comes to crush the world, but rather, behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Right? The, the Lamb, this gentle Jesus coming to rescue His people to show them grace and mercy and love. And we see that throughout the Old Testament, right? This is where we, we so often get it wrong by thinking, okay, yeah, the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. Suddenly he changed his mind and, and all of a sudden he felt this compassion and mercy and grace. No, like go back and read the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament, through the lens of grace, and see the grace and mercy and compassion and love that God shows over and over and over again. I mean, just think of the story of Noah. Right? Where God says, I'm going to destroy the earth, and he is right and good in doing that. Gives them a hundred, over a hundred years that, well, Noah's building the ark to repent. And Noah, I'm sure, was not just standing around saying, and people were coming by asking, well, what is that? Well, I don't know, it's a secret, right? Noah was most likely saying, please follow God, repent, come on the boat. God shows great patience and mercy and grace over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. He loves us so much. I love the way Francis Chan says this in his book, Crazy Love. He says, The very fact that a holy, eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful, merciful, fair, and just God loves you and me is nothing short of astonishing. The wildest part is that Jesus doesn't have to love us. His being is utterly complete and perfect apart from humanity. He doesn't need me or you, yet he wants us, chooses us, even considers us his inheritance. The greatest knowledge we can ever have is knowing God treasures us. The fact that that God loves you, chose you, sees you as his inheritance is a beautiful, beautiful reality. Nothing that we've done. Simply his love, his grace, his mercy. So let's look at this, uh, this phrase, this first phrase there in Hebrews 1, 3b. After making purification for sins. This idea of purification for sins brings up the Old Testament of atoning sacrifices for sins. So you, we have to know something about purification laws and, and Old Testament Levitical laws. So you can go back and read Leviticus and see just these, these crazy things that the priests had to go through just to uh, make purification. Uh, even look at Leviticus chapter 12, which the whole chapter is just on purification after childbirth. It's kind of interesting. Uh, I always find this interesting. Please don't be offended by this. But I always found it interesting when reading Leviticus 12, if, uh, if you gave birth to a male child, you were considered unclean for seven days. If you gave birth to a female child, you were considered unclean for 14 days. Um, so I don't know twin girls. That would be a, a long long time, uh, right? But I always thought that was interesting. But just this, these crazy purification laws and these crazy things that, that these priests had to do. And, and this is what the author of Hebrews is bringing up, this idea of purification. The, the, the audience he was writing to ha- would have had a very good knowledge of Old Testament Levitical laws. Uh, so we have to have a good understanding of like Leviticus Numbers and Deuteronomy and these types of laws that happened in order to truly understand Hebrew. 
Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. So if, if Jesus had to make purification for sins, we first see that something, that means that something had to have impurities to begin with, right? This idea, you guys understand that? Like if Jesus had to purify something, that implies that, that those things, us, were impure, right? There are impurities to begin with. So repentance begins with us recognizing that we are impure and sinful people. Right? Like this is the first step, recognizing that you and I are unclean. You and I are, are the spiritual lepers. You and I are spiritually dead. You and I have so many impurities within us. And, and this is the problem. The, the world often says this, and I hear this a lot, especially at funerals. Well, they were good people. For the most part, they were good people. And you, you hear that as justification for heaven, right? And, and we hear that all the time. This is what our world is saying, right? Like, yes, I, I think I'm good enough. Like, there's been enough good in me to outweigh the bad. Well, think of it like this. This is the way. Even if you think that you're mostly okay, right? even if we think that we're mostly good, sin has infected all of us. It's like a water bottle. I meant to bring a water bottle up here, but I didn't. If I were to tell you, give you a water bottle, you said, I was thirsty, I want a drink of water, and I was to say, here, drink this water. Uh, it's 98% water, and it's 2% urine. Right? It's, it's mostly good. It's mostly right. Uh, it's mostly water. You would, like MJ just did, you would look at me with disgust and would not drink it, right? And you would say, ew, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't touch it. Why? Because that 2%, it's only 2%. That's not very much, right? You would say, no, that 2% has infected all of it. None of the water is good now. And that's what sin has done to us, right? Even if we, we think we are good, we think we are righteous, Isaiah tells us that our righteousness is like filthy rags. Our sin has infected all of us. And we are dead, right? Ephesians 2 tells us we're not just sick, we're dead. Spiritually dead and need to be made alive again. And so Jesus had to make purification for sins. This is that work of redemption Christ came down to do, to be our greater high priest. And you and I, when we trust in Christ, are purified. I love 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3 tells us, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. How do we purify ourselves? By trusting in Christ. Because Christ is the one who's done the work of purification. Right? It's not you and I. Who do the work. Christ has done the work. It is finished. It is done. And Jesus' shed blood on the cross is enough. So don't say things. I know we have a couple of funerals coming up this week. Don't say things like, yeah, they were a good per- person or a righteous person. Because that gets you nowhere. Right? I love the way Russell Moore says that in his book. He says, Mayberry leads to hell just as surely as Sodom and Gomorrah does. It may look good and clean on the outside like a good Pharisee. But on the inside, without Christ, we are rotten and dirty, and sin has infected all of us. The only claim that we can have to be with Jesus forever is the work of purification, the work of redemption that Jesus and Jesus alone has done. So say, Jesus shed his blood for me, and that I am made righteous because of what he has done. So after making purification for sins, he, being Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
So when Jesus sat down, he resumed his original dignity and glory at the right hand of God. This was not a new position for him, but rather one Christ has always had, right? You realize that, like, Christ didn't come to earth 2,000 years ago and then go assume a position that was never his. Christ has always been at the right hand of the majesty on high since before the creation of the world. Look at what Jesus said in John 17, 5 in his prayer. He said, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Christ has always been. Christ has always been the creator, the sustainer. It was always his plan to come and do the work of redemption, right? It wasn't like a plan B. Christ always was going to come and do the work. And now when he went back into heaven and took his seat, he was resuming his original dignity. So this is why we can read uh, verses like Psalm 1611, which says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And realize that true pleasures and joy are found in Christ. Right? When we read that with a New Testament perspective, read that again. In Psalm 1611, You make known to me the path of life. Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. When David is writing this, talking about God, who is sitting at the right hand of God? Jesus. So David is saying, whether he knew it or not, he is saying in Psalm 1611 that true pleasure and joy is found in Jesus. Only true satisfaction alone is found in Christ. The work that Christ has done and who Christ is, is the only thing that will satisfy you. Is the only thing that will bring you true pleasure and joy and, and fulfillment in any of life. Christ and Christ alone. And he's seated. Why? Because his work is done. Flip over with me a few pages to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, and we'll look at verses 11 through 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Christ sat down because his work was done. Priests stand up and daily do work because their work is never done. They're, they're imperfect sacrifices which can never take away sins. I find it interesting when we look at like the tabernacle or the temple model, there are no seats found within those models. Why? Because priests had to constantly be up on their feet doing their work. But Jesus takes a seat. So this would have been a new thing to a first century uh, Jew reading this, saying, thinking, what, what, how, where, where would Jesus have sat down, right, if there was no seats in the temple? Well, on his throne on high, because his work is completed. And now he's seated in his full glory to ever intercede for you and I. Right? The fact that Jesus prays for us. Jesus prayed for us in John 17. And Jesus prays for us now, intercedes for us now. That should be a comforting thought. The fact that he has perfected, verse 14 tells us, by a single offering, his death on the cross has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. How were Moses and Abraham and Noah and, and those people saved? 
by looking forward to the cross, what Jesus did on the cross, perfecting them. Hebrews 11 will go on to tell us that. How are we saved? How are we perfected by the work that Christ has done? But this is, this is so often how we think of salvation. We tend to uh, uh, you know, pray, prayer, walk an aisle, whatever we do, and, and we think, okay, all my past sins are paid for. Now I've got to try to be a good person. I have to try to not sin, and, and when I do, I have to ask for forgiveness. As if Jesus' death on the cross wasn't good enough for future sins. Right? We tend to think of that. Oh yeah, Christ's uh, death is only for my past sins, not my future sins. Let me ask you a question, Christian. How many of your sins were past sins when Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago? I don't think anyone in here is 2,000 years old. All of them were future. And if we believe the words of Hebrews 10.14, that by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, that every sin that you have committed and every sin you will commit has already been paid for. It's already been covered by the blood of Jesus. And you have been perfected. Now, Christian, where you sit, you are as perfect as you will ever be in the eyes of God because of what Christ has done. Because of the work that Jesus has done. That is something to praise God for. That is something to worship. To say, Jesus, thank you that you and you alone have done the work. He took a seat because his work is done. Go with me to verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than yours. So these first four verses, we see the author begin by saying Jesus is better than the prophets, right? We saw that in verse 1. And now in verse 4, Jesus, uh, the, the, this author says Jesus is better than the angels, right? So why is that significant? One, I, I don't think we truly see the significance of that because our culture has a skewed view of angels, uh, like these cute little chubby babies uh, with wings or these real feminine-looking creatures with wings. Uh, right? We have a wrong view of angels. When we look at a biblical view of angels, we see that angels, one, are majestic beings created to glorify God. Right? We see that in Psalm 148. We see that throughout the book of Isaiah. We see that throughout the book of Revelation. And to aid believers, Hebrews 1.14, all they are, are they all not ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation, right? So these glorious, majestic beings designed to glorify God, designed to aid believers. FYI, people, when people die and go to heaven, they do not turn into angels, right? Hebrews gives us a pretty clear view of that. that we are separate creatures from angels. In fact, people... Scripture tells us, are going to judge angels. Right? I have no idea what that's going to look like. Um, but, but Scripture tells us that. right? Those who are in Christ. Right? What a beautiful picture there. We also see that once an angel killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in 2 Kings 19, verse 35. Right? Uh, th- that's not a cute little naked baby running around with a little mini sword. Right? This is a huge, majestic being that killed 185,000 men in one night. Soldiers, by the way. We see that people like Isaiah and Mary and the shepherds in Luke 2 had to be told not to fear when angels appear. Why is that? Because they were fearful, right? These people were fearful when they saw angels. Every time we see an angel come, we see the angel say, hey, hey, hold on, don't be afraid. Or we say, 
they say, hey, don't worship me, right? Uh, we see that like with um, John. Think about the Apostle John, who walked with Jesus, by the way. This was the Apostle John, who for three years walked alongside of Jesus, didn't even recognize uh, him in Revelation 19 and tried to worship an angel. Right? And the angel said, hey, hold on, John, don't worship me. Right? We are servants of Jesus together. Let's worship Jesus together. Right? These are majestic beings. But angels... As majestic as they are, and you can go on and read verses 5 through the end of uh, the chapter and, and see that Jesus is greater than the angels. Angels, as great and majestic as they are, bow down to worship Jesus. Right? If people bow down in fear to angels, but angels bow down to Jesus, who's that tell us we should bow down to? Jesus. And worship Jesus and see him for his greatness and his glory and his beauty and the name that is above all else. Look, he has become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus' name, right? We don't see that. It's not as significant in our culture because usually we just uh, give our kids names by whatever we want to name them. Uh, but, but in biblical times, in these times, uh, people intentionally named with meanings. And Jesus' name shows everything that Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 has told us. That he is the creator of all things. That he is the sustainer of all things. That he is the one who is holding all of creation together. That he is the glorious one who did the work of redemption, did the work of purification, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, intercessing for you and I forever and ever. And one day we'll come back and bring us to be with him. That's what the name of Jesus is. Philippians 2 gives us that beautiful, beautiful picture that one day every knee will bow, whether on the earth or under the earth or in heaven, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone is going to recognize his greatness and his beauty. So Christian, worship now. Bow down now. Confess Christ as Lord now. Go and proclaim Christ as Lord now, the glorious, beautiful Christ that Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 gives us that picture. The one who is glorious and is holding all of, redemp- all of creation together, and the one who is glorious and did the work of redemption for you and I. You and I don't add anything. We talked about this, this picture a few weeks ago on a Wednesday night, but I think one of the best pictures in, in all of Scripture of the Gospel is in Genesis chapter 15. Right, The author of Hebrews telling us, go back, look, and Jesus has spoken to us. Genesis 15 is where God makes the Abrahamic covenant uh, with Abraham. And Abraham falls into um, uh, this dream, goes into, uh, he sleeps, and, and basically God gives him this vision. And in this vision, he's looking at this, this tunnel, this pit. And you have to kind of know uh, Jewish culture at that time. What they would do basically is essentially they would uh, slice an animal in half, so like a cow or a, a sheep or a goat or whatever, and they would put half of the animal on one side and half of the animal on the other side, and they would have a little trench, and all the blood from both sides would go into this trench. And what they would do is they would make a blood covenant. So I'm going to promise you this, and I'm going to keep this side, and the other person would keep the other side, and they would together walk through this this uh, ditch of blood saying, if I don't keep the side of my covenant, the blood is on me. And the other person would say, if I don't keep my side of the covenant, the blood is on me. And so Abraham would have recognized this. So Abraham's getting up, getting ready to walk through this. And God keeps him where he is. And God himself goes through this blood tunnel. 
What God is saying there, this is a beautiful picture of this work of redemption. God is saying, I'm going to keep my side of the covenant. And God, not once has he ever failed. Not once has he ever lied. Right? God will and has and always will keep his side of the covenant. And God is also saying, I'm, Abraham, I'm keeping your side of the covenant too. That's the picture of the gospel. You and I cannot keep our side of the covenant. You and I cannot be good enough. We cannot hold on to ourselves. But Christ does. Christ is the one who keeps us to the end, who keeps us firm, who goes. This is the picture of the cross, right? Goes through it alone. This is why Jesus didn't say, hey, I need some of you guys to come and die with me. He goes by himself to Calvary, dies on the cross, rises from the grave by himself, saying, now my work is complete. It is finished, and it is for you. This is why we say here, that Christ exists, for the completed work of Christ exists for us, and now you and I exist for Christ. He has done the work. It is finished, the work of purification, the work of redemption. You and I don't add anything to it. And that's real easy to say. It's another thing to believe, because we, we want to think that we have to earn it, that we have to be good enough, that we have to be these super Christians. And we have to pray enough, or read scripture enough, or come to church enough, or, or not cuss enough, or whatever idea you may have. And all of those fall short of Christ and his glory and the work that he has done. We all fall short of his glory, Romans clearly tells us. So why do we think any of our work would be different? Our work is like filthy rags. Our righteousness is like filthy rags. We have to trust the work that Christ has done. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 talks And it tells us some of what Jesus has done. We looked at that, right? He made purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. But I find it interesting that in in one of the most Christocentric, Christ-centered passages in all of Scripture, that we see more of of who Jesus is rather than the work that he has done. Right? Hebrews 1, 1 1-4 does tell us some of the things that Jesus has done, but it focuses on more of what or who he is. And those things go together. We cannot separate who Christ is and the work he has done. When we have a right view of Christ, we'll have a right view of the, redeem, the redeeming work, the redemptive work that he and he alone has done. And so we do, we, this is what happens so often when we present the gospel, when we tell someone about Christ. We often talk about what Jesus has done, and rightfully so. We must tell of him leaving his throne, of him going to Calvary, dying on the cross for us, and rising from the dead. Absolutely so. But rarely do we talk about who he is. Right? And we are, we are now in a, what's called a post-Christian culture where most people don't even know who Jesus is. Or at least they don't have a right view of him. So why would they care about his work? Christian, we must proclaim who Christ is while also proclaiming the work that he has done. And when, and while trusting Christ, we trust the work he's done, we also must have a right view of who he is. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 helps us with that, helps us see the excellent name of Christ that is above the angels and the prophets and you and I. See who Christ is. For example, this would be, pretend you know nothing of baseball in here. This would be like me telling you, and I know some of you guys know nothing about baseball. This would be like me saying, hey, Ken Griffey Jr. uh, hit 630 home runs. Right? Okay. Who cares? Right? This is what we try to do with presenting the gospel so often, right? Like, who cares? Who's Ken Griffey Jr.? Right? Or did he hit those 630 home runs in T-ball? Right? What What did he do? But rather, when I say, hey, Ken Griffey Jr., who played in the MLB, 
which is the professional baseball league in the United States, just FYI, the greatest league in all of uh, the world. He was drafted number one overall, the number one draft pick in 1987, straight out of high school, right? 18-year-old kid drafted straight out of high school to go play in the pros. And he was one of the best to ever play baseball. He hit 630 home runs in his career, which is seventh all time. That gives you a little more information. And you start to realize, oh, wow, this Ken Griffey Jr. guy was pretty awesome. And he was. You should have watched him. Uh, he was. You can go YouTube him. Likewise, when we are telling people of the great work that Christ has done, or when we're preaching to ourselves, reminding ourselves what Christ has done for us, remind ourselves who Christ is. Right? I, I think it's awesome that 2 Corinthians 3.18 doesn't say, Behold the work of the Lord. Rather, it says, Behold the glory of the Lord. Behold who Christ is. Look at Jesus. See his greatness. Follow after him. Behold him. Get alone with God daily. Read his word. Spend time praying to him. Gather together and talk about him. Proclaim him and you will be transformed, changed into the image of him. Christ and Christ alone does that work. And this is why scripture oftentimes uh, gives us, when it gives us a command, it ties it in with who God is. I mean, think of the Great Commission in Matthew 28. If you'll go with me to Matthew chapter 28. God doesn't just tell us, and this is how we quote it sometimes, especially as Southern Baptists. We just say verse 19, right? Like We have to go and do this work. We have to go and tell people about Jesus. We have to go and make disciples. Christ ties that in exactly with who he is. Matthew 28, starting in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There is not one thing which Christ is not king and commander and ruler over. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus bookmarks these with, with bookends these with two, two direct statements of who he is. One, he's, he has all authority. Every bit of authority, all power belongs to Jesus. And two, he'll never leave us. That's the reason why we can go and proclaim the gospel. Not that this message of I have to be good enough, it ties right in with the gospel. Because Christ did the work, because Christ is enough, because Christ has all the authority, we can go and proclaim. When we understand who God is, the significance of his redeeming us becomes even more apparent. The God of the universe loves me and died for me. The God who holds all things together loves me enough to come and die for me. Not based on anything I've done, based completely on his mercy and grace. Look at this beautiful picture with me quickly in Zechariah chapter 9. A few months ago we went through the book of Zechariah. Maybe you'll remember this picture. Zechariah 9.11 As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. So during this time, oftentimes because of a shortage of housing, uh, they, when, when people had slaves, they would throw them into these pits at nighttime. And in the morning, someone would come and get them. And there was only two ways they were getting out of this pit. Either one, to continue in their labor, or two, because they were redeemed. 
And what, and this, this picture is very clear what God is saying here. He's saying, I have come because of the blood of my covenant with you. I'm going to come and set those prisoners free. Let, set the slaves free from the waterless pit. You and I have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. You and I are as pure as we can ever be because of Christ. I love the way Jared Wilson says it in his book, The Pastor's Justification. He said, God has promised himself to you in Christ, and he will secure you to himself in Christ. To be hidden with Christ in God is to be as secure as Christ is. If we are in Christ, our salvation is secure as Christ is on the throne. Christ did the work. Christ's redemption, Christ's work of purification is enough, Christian. Trust him and him alone. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that your work is enough. That your work of redemption, your work of purification is all we need. Remind us again, God, as our fickle hearts so often forget that life and salvation and glory is all about you. Jesus, thank you, even though I don't understand it, that you loved me enough to come and rescue me, not based on anything that I've done, not because I was good enough or strong enough or had a strong enough will, but simply because of your grace. Jesus, I pray that we would trust your redeeming work. We would trust your rescuing power. Trust that you have conquered, that you came into the waterless pit and freed us, redeemed us, purchased us with your blood. And God, because of your your purifying work, we are as pure as we can ever be. Make us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.